We would like to acknowledge and respect the traditional owners, including the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people, as the original custodians of this land, along with their customs and traditions and their special relationship with the land. It's Sunday, June 6th, and welcome to The Wind Down, a recap of the week's news produced by Swinburne University's The Standard. I'm your host, Lauren Boddicker. Among today's headlines, Christian Porter drops his defamation case against the ABC, also coming up, writers Aditi Kuti and Angus Delaney join me to discuss the lockdown and Naomi Osaka. Plus, we hear from reporter Nazara Hadiri on her article about the management of child sex offender information. Melbourne's lockdown has been extended until the 10th of June, with acting Premier James Molino saying it's necessary to avoid a third wave in Victoria. Melburnians have just five reasons to leave the house, which includes getting the vaccine. The only changes to restrictions for people in Melbourne is the expansion of the 5km exercise radius, which has been increased to 10km. Former Attorney General Christian Porter has dropped his defamation case against the ABC after engaging in mediation. The current Minister for Industry, Science and Technology launched his defamation action in March of this year, after a Four Corners report and ABC article said an unnamed cabinet minister had allegedly raped a woman in the 1980s. Porter later identified himself as the cabinet member referred to and strenuously denied the allegations at the time and continues to do so now. The ABC said that although the article was not intended to suggest that Porter had committed the rape, some people have regrettably misinterpreted the article as an accusation of guilt. The article remains published on their website with a newly added editor's note, which reiterates that the article is not intended to suggest Porter committed the alleged crime. They are paying no damages to Porter and are only covering the cost of mediation. Although Porter has received no apology or retraction of the article, he claimed victory in a press conference. Let me be absolutely clear about what has happened publicly in this settlement. The ABC has determined not to defend the matter. They have been forced by these proceedings to explicitly state that the accusations that were contained in the article could not be proved to either a civil or criminal standard. The ABC said that the accusations could not be substantiated in legal proceedings to either a civil or criminal standard of proof. Amidst national outrage over JobKeeper payments and underpaying staff, Harvey Norman has deleted their Twitter account. The retailer has been at the centre of controversy ever since its founder Jerry Harvey refused to pay back $22 million in JobKeeper payments, even though the business more than doubled its profit during the second half of 2020 during the pandemic. They paid their employees with federal wage subsidies like JobKeeper despite bringing in the big bucks, even though companies like Toyota and Domino's paid back JobKeeper when it became clear that they could sustain employees' wages on their own. Harvey Norman employees and unionists are calling for a 3.5% wage increase, but owner Jerry Harvey is calling for a minimum wage freeze. The controversy moved to Twitter when hashtag boycott Harvey Norman started trending, which led to the account, which claimed to be unmanned, blocking a range of people including unions, politicians, and any regular tweeter who was showing discontent towards the retail giant. The Twitter account also responded to some users aggressively, including when a user said, working for the company for six months drove me to suicide, which Harvey Norman's Twitter responded with a facepalm and waving emoji. Soon after, the company deleted its account. 
There's absolutely no one who's off limits when it comes to blocking. With pay rates like these, you literally cannot afford to leave the store. No, folks, we've gone absolutely insane. Just make sure you don't mention the union or you'll be sent walking out the door. Peru's COVID-19 death toll has almost tripled overnight after a government review with the numbers of deaths growing from 69,000 to 180,000. The enormous surge in numbers occurred because a significant portion of deaths were not classified as COVID-related. Previously, deaths were only classified as a coronavirus death if they were preceded by a positive test result. Now that the criteria for this changed, many deaths were reclassified. The country now has the most COVID-19 deaths per capita with 500 deaths per 100,000 people. The death toll is now in line with its excess death figures, which has been used during the pandemic to get a better image of total deaths in countries that have a suspected undercounting of coronavirus cases. This number measures the total deaths over a period of time and compares it to pre-pandemic levels. COVID cases in Peru remain high with more than 4,000 reported daily. China's government announced it will introduce a three-child policy. I'm pregnant. Huh? What, what were you thinking? Why you have to um, just, just get another baby? You just have two! For couples after their 2016 two-child policy failed to address a low birth rate and increase in their aged population. The Chinese Communist Party's strong restrictions on population, which until 2016 only allowed one child per couple, has jeopardized the country's future as the labor pool shrinks. China's once-a-decade census revealed that the population was growing at its slowest rate ever, and fertility rates for 2020 were at just three-point children per woman. However, there is skepticism that the one-child increase will get the desired results, as the cost of education rises, as well as the lack of childcare. Yifi Li, a sociologist at New York University in Shanghai said, people are held back not by the children limit, but by the incredibly high costs of raising children in today's China. To combat this, China will lower education costs for families, increase housing support and improve maternity leave, making it easier for couples to have more children. Facebook has made the decision to ban former US President Donald Trump from the platform for two years. The announcement comes after recommendations from their quasi-independent oversight board, which upheld a decision to keep Trump's Facebook page suspended, but could not do so indefinitely. The suspension was a response to the January 6 coup on the Capitol, incited by the former president's claims of voter fraud in a speech to his supporters. Facebook have also announced they are lifting the policy that allowed the speech and abuse exemptions for politicians, a policy long championed by founder Mark Zuckerberg. Social media giants said they will reassess Trump's risk to public safety at the end of this two-year period. Here's Trent Nice with Sport. Sport has had a busy week this week with tennis world number two Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the famous French Open. Osaka came out declaring her mental health issues, specifically anxiety, making her nervous to talk in front of the world's media. More of this topic in our next segment, The Breakdown. Moving on to world soccer and Chelsea have been crowned the champions of Europe, beating Manchester City 1-0 early on Sunday morning. German Kai Havertz scoring the only goal of the game in the 42nd minute. AFL action this week saw Melbourne-based games with no crowds as Victoria deals with another serious COVID outbreak. Melbourne Demons still sitting on top of the AFL ladder as of Friday night with an 11-1 record. And finally in sport, the preparations for the Olympics are ramping up. 
With just over a month to go, the Australian Olympic team have started their vaccination programs and debuted their new uniforms in front of the Opera House earlier in May. That's all this week for sport. I've been Trent Neese and this is The Wind Down. We move on now to The Breakdown, a new segment in which we break down some of the biggest stories of the week. I'm joined by the standard video editor, Aditi Kuti, and environment editor, Angus Delaney, both writers of the show. We're talking about COVID and lockdown and when we thought it was going to end. Well, in terms of vaccine rollout, we know Australia hasn't been doing too great. Um, I'm happy to say I'm getting my vaccine on June 14th. So that's something to look forward to. That's right, because you work at... um, oh. I work in aged care, yeah. Yeah. So I'm lucky enough to get mine in the next two weeks, which I'm looking forward to. I'm getting Pfizer. And so is everybody there. And there's been a lot of talk about like the different types of vaccines, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and like who's going to get what. And I think that confusion led to a lot of people not being sure if they wanted it. What do you guys think? Um, I know like my family really they spoke a lot about this and my brother's gotten vaccinated because he's a flight attendant. So he got Pfizer because he's 30 and my mum my mom and dad are booked in to get a vaccine and they both know that they're going to be kind of, I don't want to say forced, but they're going to get AstraZeneca, I'm pretty sure, whether they want it or not. Yeah, with my parents, um, I mean, there was only a tiny bit of hesitation, mainly because my mum has diabetes um, and they're both kind of um, just, they're in their mid fifties. So they're just eligible for the AstraZeneca. Um, And it is a bit worrying for me as well, knowing that that possibility, however small, um, is there. But at the same time, I think both them and me would much prefer that they were vaccinated um, and like safe. And there's actually it's come to light just recently that a global firm got paid like over $600,000 by the government to create a vaccine rollout strategy, but they didn't actually give specific advice. And the only documents that got released from that four-week period where they were consulting with this company for heaps of money, it's just an eight-page set of like oh, data about vaccines that anyone could get access to. So you would have hoped that there'd be like a better method that the government and this consulting company came up with at the start because I've got a um, bit of a game for us to play about vaccines (laughs) around the world. So I'm going to give us four, five countries and you have to rank them and place Australia. Where do you think Australia compares to these countries? So we have Seychelles, the Netherlands, Dominican Republic, Colombia and Australia. Where do you think Australia rates in percentage of population vaccinated out of those countries. Seychelles. What was the first one again? Seychelles. <laughs> Seychelles. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's oh, it. Seychelles. <laughs> okay. I just know the flag's really pretty. Sorry. <laughs> I know Seychelles is actually, um, this is not a guess. This Any is, guesses? Um, I know it. Uh, they're actually like the number one, I think. Um, yeah. They're number one, over 65%. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But I have a feeling, I don't know if this is me just like, I don't know if this is you playing games with my head, but I have a feeling Australia is like the last out of all of them. (laughs) Australia is the last, just just 2% is Australia. Colombia, 6.5%, Dominican Republic, 10 and Netherlands, 17 But 
lately, it's actually been rising. We're 84th in the world for fully vaccinated is the latest data. But just a few weeks ago, we were, you know, 115th around that area. So the first million vaccinations took 47 days. The second million took 19. The third million has taken 17. And it's just taken 13 days for the most recent million vaccinations. So things are starting to look better, I think. Yeah. Well, also, if we're talking about COVID, just quickly, a bunch of relief funds have come out this week and the, the Victorian government had some business support packages and then they were calling for the federal government to pitch in and give money to working Victorians that couldn't um, work anymore because of the lockdown. And there was a bit of back and forth, but eventually the government said, all right, we'll give you some, we'll give you some payments. So there's weekly relief payments. And if you've lost work in the lockdown, you can get 500 bucks a week if you worked 20 hours or more and 325 a week if you worked less than 20 hours. But you can't be getting other like bonuses from the government and you need to have less than 10,000 in liquid assets, so cash and stocks. And personally, I think just like JobKeeper, that this could have been better calculated. So if you worked right on 20 hours a week and you get 500 bucks, it's like you made $25 an hour. But if you worked... 40 hours, it's like you're earning $12.50 a week if you're getting that 500 bucks or $12.50 an hour. So I just think it could have maybe, maybe it had an upper tier as well. Maybe you get $7.50 a week if you work 40 hours, which is still not heaps per hour, but it's better than the 500. I mean, yeah, what, what, I don't know what Josh Frydenberg came out and said, you know, we've already like done enough or something, like at the beginning of like this whole debate about having support packages for Victorians, you know, when, yeah. Yeah, he said that already given the most per capita to Victoria with $45 billion, which is a lot, but, you know, COVID is an unprecedented time as well. Yeah, I've been, I've been lucky enough to be working from home as well. Um, and like, uh, but I have so many friends who have lost their jobs kind of over the pandemic because they've been working in retail um, or they've been working in hospitality. When I worked in retail for a lot of people, this was their livelihood. It wasn't just a part-time job that they were doing while living at home for like pocket money. Um, The majority of people I worked with were doing it to pay rent, um, to look after children, um, things like that. And it's just kind of, yeah, cannot imagine, especially with all the rent relief having stopped, um, how much strain this must be putting them under. Earlier in the week, I don't know if you guys know, but Zara, it was revealed that Zara had okay. underpaid a whole bunch of its stuff, <laughs> you know, and yeah, you're rolling your eyes, you know, not surprised, right? <laughs> Which is so disappointing. Um, they underpaid oh, Aussie staff geez, by $2.6 yeah. $2. million. And, you know, we're talking about the pandemic and COVID and restrictions and people having to tap into these support packages, which you know, obviously they don't want to have to do. And then we've got these companies that decide to not pay their staff, which I just can't believe that this is happening at this time, but maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Well, another great example of that is the Harvey yeah. Norman stuff, which we covered on our headlines this week. And that's like ruffled a lot of feathers and they've deleted their Twitter account. So at least people are making a stand against it. In terms of the Zara story, I was just looking into, you know, what kinds of things are the government doing to, you know, help staff and help businesses as well better manage their processes. So they 
um, dedicated, I think in the uh, budget, $134 million in a deregulation agenda. So that's like helping companies figure out what money needs to be paid to who. It allows them to streamline their processes mm-hmm. and hopefully get everything correct so this kind of thing doesn't happen. So this was announced in, in the budget, I think it was this year. And, I mean, it goes it kind of does make sense that it would be maybe a complicated process. And I saw this report that said uh, the national retail CEO, Dominique Lam, he said that, you know, retailers have to retailers have had to deal with 14,000 different rates of pay, like since 2013. So people who are casual and people who work different hours and different days and people who, you know, so there's all these different variables that make it quite like a complicated process. But I don't know, is that justification? Like, I don't think so. There are plenty of businesses that do manage to pay their employees what they're owed, and they are much smaller than Zara is. So I don't know. I feel like with the resources that their company has, uh, they should be better at paying their employees. You know, it's the kind of thing that you... You'd be less surprised by, I think, by, I mean, I'm not surprised that Zara did this, but you would be less surprised if it was a small cafe um, or, you know, a, a family-owned business, for example. Um, all the books, exactly, yeah. But Zara's not like that. They've got a team of people to cover this. So, yeah. Yeah, and they had like a, a profit growth to... million dollars over 12 months to January 31st 2020 so um it's it's interesting you know they're seeing profit and revenue growth and yet they're underpaying their staff Uh, another thing that I thought was interesting was that the companies are is looking to reduce costs and borrow money from its parent company to stay in operation in Australia so it's like they're making it sound like they're really struggling or it sounds like they're having issues to stay in Australia in operation. Like they have 19 stores here. So yeah, Zara kind of joins the ranks of like Woolies and David Jones and Bunnings and Super Retail Group in like this long list of companies that can't seem to pay their staff. Um, But I also saw this interesting thing. Victoria's the first state in Australia to have this actioned It's a uh, wage theft act, which is coming into action apparently like July 1st. And it means like the bill imposes significant penalties, including jail time against employers underpaying their staff. Um, And employers must not dishonestly withhold whole or part of an employee's entitlements. Um, And it also establishes this thing or this group called the Wage Inspectorate which kind of sounds like the Avengers, but they like, they fight wage theft. (laughs) (laughs) Not all superheroes wear capes. (laughs) Exactly. Like, you know, where's the justice? I have not been watching any superhero movies, but I need need some justice. That's what I need. We need the wage inspectorate to step up. Yeah, one wage inspectorate. The hero we deserve. (laughs) And the one we need right now. (laughs) Um, Speaking of, uh, you know, the mental health of workers, um, Naomi Osaka. Um, so she, I don't, um, obviously Trent covered this in the sport headlines, um, earlier on, but 
Naomi Osaka has pulled out of the French Open uh, because the French Open fight tried to fine her very heavily for not attending press conferences, which she kind of made clear about why she wasn't attending press conferences on social media, although she never really referenced her own mental health in the original post. Uh, She did kind of vaguely reference how press conferences were negatively affecting um, the mental health of athletes. I I think the technical term she used was like kicking them while they're down. Well, I've heard like a lot of the media stuff that I've seen about this has been sympathetic towards her and what she's going through. I mean, they're earning a lot of money just by participating in a tournament, not even winning it, you know? So like, I kind of see that, but also, yeah, I'm, I am like, I'm proud of her for what she did. Like, I think what she's done is the right thing, but I also stand, like, I understand the sort of what comes with being a sports star but it's a job right like any job you know you deserve mental health breaks right so is there a way that the press conferences can be changed for people that are like struggling can they make it a bit less stressful or confrontational if someone gets anxiety speaking in front of you know the world's media can they do it remotely or through like messaging or something like that could that work Well, that's actually been the topic of a lot of debate now that this has happened. Um, A lot of people have been wondering whether press conferences are even necessary. Um, Historically, in these tournaments, uh, they've been about, you know, they've been the only link between like fans and like players. It's been kind of the only way for athletes to talk directly to people and um, say what needs to be said. Uh, And obviously this is also a means of promotion for tournaments. Uh, It gives them airtime outside of their broadcast agreements, especially because a lot of these press conferences are designed to produce heated moments and incendiary comments and drama. Um, But yeah, a lot of players really don't like press conferences, especially in tennis. I've noticed even more so than other sports that I follow, not Mm. that I follow a lot of sports, (laughs) Um, but um, yeah, there's... Tennis, I mean, if any of you guys have seen Nick Kyrgios at a press conference, you can tell he does not want to be there. Um, but a, a lot of people have come out, you know, Novak Djokovic, Venus Williams, um, but Atomic have come out and said that, you know, yes, it is a job, but we really don't like doing it. And it's often because they get questions like um, how their marriage and relationships and children affect their playing ability or in the case of Stan Wawrinka what Martin Luther King would have been like on Twitter which is a totally irrelevant question um so a lot of people have been questioning whether press conferences are really necessary at all especially because we have social media now for athletes to communicate directly with Mm -hmm. fans um and they don't really need to be put under a lot of pressure the way press conferences do There's also, yeah, generally, like you said, um, Naomi Osaka has anxiety and anyone who has been following her career and following tennis in general knows that she is extremely uncomfortable in interviews. You can tell by the way she speaks. Um, And it's interesting because she's always been extremely polite regardless. You cannot say that for a lot of tennis players out there. Yeah, I'd like to see um, like a disruption in how media covers sport, like yeah, the media conferences that you yeah spoke about and, yeah, the idea of, 
maybe changing up how that process is done. I think that could be really interesting as well. Like losing players also have to do press conferences and often that can be like a few minutes after the match ends. Uh, so it's kind of like you do, you can't blame them for not liking the whole Look, setup. The press conferences are part of the job, but I agree that like no one should have to, part. no one's job should be tied into feeling anxious and unsafe so I think they just need some sort of solution where players and media can meet in the middle ground I will I <laughs> guess well, I'll see you guys sometime easy yeah easy. see you guys thanks Angus and Aditi for joining me this week Aditi spoke with reporter Nazara Hayden about her article on the identification of child sex offenders and whether it can actually help with the problem of child sexual abuse fantastic um thank you so much sarah for joining me um today uh how are you going today by the way before we get started how is lockdown like treating you well for me lockdown isn't uh that different really uni has ended and also i'm a healthcare worker so i still kind of go to work and pretty same old (laughs) um so you wrote an article um about the identification of child sex offenders um and having a national registry Uh, and whether that's actually effective or not. Do you want to just kind of give a summary, a quick summary of exactly, you know, what you found in your reporting? So I came across the the inquiry on the parliament page about whether we should uh, pass with the law that uh, enables us to share offender information to the general public. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And I looked further into it and I like initially I had one take, but throughout the article, I guess uh, it's a completely different take to what I ended up writing about. But what was your initial take? What angle did you initially want to go with? And when I first came across the article, I was 100% sure that this law is something that should be passed. Like, uh, I felt like just looking at it at face value, it's something that a lot of people, when they look at it, they're like, okay, yeah, definitely. Like, why wouldn't you want to know who is an offender so we can keep our kids away from them? And like, just in general, like I, I felt like it would just make the community safer. Mm-hmm. But um, after attending like meetings and um, just uh, researching more and uh, reading, you know, past hearings, I was like, okay, this is completely different to what I initially thought. Um like you, when you look at all the evidence and everything, you realize it's just not as effective as it sounds. Yeah, of course. I, I, I was honestly kind of surprised too because I had the same feeling as you. I thought, like, yeah, of course we should know who sex offenders are, like, <laughs> and we should, we should have a registry. But when I read your article, I realized, oh yeah, there's a lot about this that we haven't even thought of, like on a surface level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, even when I first came across like Dr. Kelly Richard's submission to the parliament, I was like, no way she's going against this. But then reading into it, I was like, okay, this makes sense. Yeah, fair enough. Um, in terms of, um, you spoke to uh, Dr. Kelly Richards um, about programs that involved kind of prevention in terms of talking to children. Did she say a lot about, you know, what these programs were? So she did talk about the circles of Support and Accountability, uh, also known as COSA, so I'll just refer to it as COSA, um, wherein they work with the offenders after they've been released, uh, so to help them just, uh, I guess, find a job, become stable in the society again, find actual supports that they can turn to, and just uh, work towards living a normal life again. And 
it does sound a bit what like why are you having the offender but um when you really look at it and you look at the evidence backed by it uh, it's backed by sorry it kind of makes sense and it's actually been shown to be way more effective than just outing the offender's information to the wider public yeah and I would assume there's a lot of stigma around um you know being a child sex offender as well I mean obviously it's a horrible horrible crime but at the same time a lot of these people um come from places where they might feel quite disassociated or they've experienced abuse themselves and they're just kind of continuing the cycle um and when you look at it that way I guess I can kind of understand why they would require rehabilitation rather than you know naming and shaming also with naming and shaming you find that uh because about say 90 to 95 percent of offenders are actually someone that the child actually knows. So when you name and shame, it doesn't only name and shame the offender. It's going to put the child at risk, it's going to put the whole family at risk. And there have mm-hmm. been cases where like people just completely stereotype the whole family and just out them from the community, which what did the victim do, you know? Yeah. So it's really ineffective, really. <laughs> yeah, goodness. Yeah, I did not even think of that. Um, in terms of uh, like... Um, the pandemic and lockdowns, how much did you learn about how that might have affected, uh, you know, the increase in child sex abuse? Not only um, was there an increase in just like domestic and family violence and which led to that budget where the victims could take out money from their own super, which is a bit, uh, there was problems with that in and of itself, but that's a whole different article to talk about. Uh, but that would also consist of some children who had to uh, escape offenders. But in general, reports from the Crime Statistics Agency, agency sorry, showed a 36% increase in sexual offences against children in Victoria just in the lockdown we had last year for the six months. Actually, the statistics were from April to June, which is even less than the six months we had. Oh my goodness. So like 36% just in that time. This is April to June 2020, just to clarify. Yeah. So it doesn't even include like the majority of the Melbourne lockdown last year. Oh my goodness. That's, that's a big number. (laughs) That's pretty bad. It's so, it's such a scary number. Yeah. You mentioned that there's obviously rehabilitation programs as alternatives to, you know, this kind of identification program. But there is still the matter of, I guess, people feeling people feeling like it's still, they would still like to know, you know, when a child sex offender, a registered child sex offender is in their area. Um, what do you kind of have to say to people who kind of might feel a bit paranoid? I know uh, Ms. Carol Ronkin did speak about this and she did say that this scheme was actually passed in Western Australia, but they only had only 6% of people on the register. So that's only 6% of offenders. Uh, so it just gives a false sense of safety mm. to the community. And then you're just trusting your kids with people who you don't know about. Because again, this is like family-based and it's scary to just out your own family member. Most of them, you know, 95% are uh, within their own family members. So not everyone's going to be speaking up about it. And then even if they do, because of not outing the victim, you can't necessarily put it on the register because then you're putting the victim at risk and it's just, it's it's not effective at all. Thank you so much for speaking to us on this, Nasara. Um, and we look forward to your article, which is going to be coming out on The Standard soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely talking to you. 
Today's episode of The Wind Down was written by Angus Delaney, Aditi Kuti, and Lauren Bodica. Our editor was Lauren Bodica, and album artwork is by Emily Lee. You can find us on Twitter at Swin Journalism, Instagram at Swinburne Journalism, or on our website, theswinstandard.net. Until next time, you've been listening to The Wind Down. <laughs> <laughs>